Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zora. Africa, Amka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu, in studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories in Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, the Democratic Republic of Congo's parliament elects first female speaker, Rwanda Supreme Court appeals law banning satirical cartoons and South Africa steps up relief efforts in areas devastated by floods. In economics news, South African Union AMCU faces deregistration by Labour Department and in sports news, Sundowns face Waidad Casablanca in CAF Champions League semi-finals. But first up the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Cyclone Kenneth has made landfall in northern Mozambique, bringing with it 220 kilometers per hour winds. Kenneth has already Cyclone Kenneth has already killed three people on the island, nation of Kumos. Mozambique's National Institute of Disaster Management says 30,000 people have been evacuated from areas likely to be hit. Last month, Cyclone Edai caused hundreds of deaths in southern Africa. More than 900 people died when the storm brought devastation to Mozambique, Malawi and Zimbabwe. Meanwhile, the United Nations says humanitarian aid agencies have pre-positioned supplies for the impact and aftermath of Cyclone Kenneth, but assessing damage to the Comoros where Kenneth hit en route to Mozambique is proving difficult. The cyclone has brought with it strong winds and torrential rain to Mozambique before heading to Tanzania. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric. The government, the Red Crescent Society and the UN are assessing the impact due to the remoteness of the three islands hit by the cyclone. Uh, assessing that damage is a challenge. Uh, initial unconfirmed reports from the Comoros include extensive damage to houses and flooded villages due to sea surge and broken dikes. Roads have also been cut off by fallen trees. In Mozambique, in anticipation of tropical cyclones Kenneth Landfall there, the Office of the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs has been working towards putting search and rescue teams on alert for possible deployment if required. Humanitarian organizations are pre-positioning supplies. In South Africa, the acting premier of KwaZulu-Natal province, Sihlezi Galala, says the provincial government will soon make an announcement 
Regarding the funerals of the victims of the floods in the province, the death toll has been revised to 67 from earlier reports of more than 70. Some of the worst hit areas are informal settlements in KwaZulu-Natal, where some people live in houses without proper foundations or drainage systems. The death toll in neighboring Eastern Cape Province has risen to eight. Zigalala says the identification of bodies at the province's mortuaries is continuing. We'll then work with these communities to ensure that those who are affected, especially those who passed on, are given dignified uh, send-off. The Somali government has evacuated 50 people from Libya amid deteriorating security and escalating violence. In an interview with Voice of America, Somalia's ambassador to Libya, Muaddin Mohamed Kamoy, said the federal government of Somalia had airlifted up to 50 people who were stranded in the conflict-ravaged North African country. He said the government was committed to bringing back Somali nationals from several countries. The diplomat says his embassy had discussed with the International Organization for Migration the fate of the remaining Somalis in Libya. And finally, Amnesty International says more than 1,600 civilians were killed by the U.S.-led bombing campaign on the Syrian city of Raqqa, which is 10 times as many as the coalition has acknowledged. The United States says it took great care to avoid civilian casualties. The BBC's Jonathan Beale reports. Amnesty said it worked with the monitoring group Air Wars to carry out the most comprehensive assessment of the four-month coalition bombing campaign on Raqqa. It involved interviewing hundreds of survivors on the ground and analysing thousands of satellite images. Much of the city was left in ruins as a result of the intense fighting with a group who often used civilians as human shields. But Amnesty and Air War still describe some of the coalition air and artillery strikes as inaccurate and indiscriminate. That's the New Zealand's at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza, Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. Let's talk about it. I'm Joe Mangria. And I'm Tabitha Jala. Join us at 9 a.m. Central African Time. Let's, Let's talk, talk about this. A program on AIDS and other social issues. A program that will encourage a positive lifestyle to young people affected and infected. Let's, Let's talk, talk about this at 9 a.m. Central African Time on Channel Africa. 70 people are now confirmed to have been killed in this week's floods in South Africa's Guazul-Natal province. That's according to acting Guazul-Natal Premier Sihlezi Galala, who briefed the media in Durban on Thursday. Over a thousand people have been displaced. Zikalala says government is trying its best to provide relief for the flood victims. Prabashni Mudli reports. As the flood death toll continues to rise in KwaZulu-Natal, Acting Premier Sishle Zikalala says government has established an operations centre to deal with flood relief. Speaking to the media in Durban, Zikalala says never before has the province had to deal with such destruction and soaring loss of life. As government, as we indicated, we have established the operations centre. 
It is functioning. It is a nerve center which coordinates all assistance. It ensures that it links all of these districts and provides support to these affected communities. We are uh, worried and quite devastated by the increasing number of fatalities. We are now told that the number is getting around 70. While assistance has been slow to reach the worst affected community members, Zikalala says the province will ensure that those who have died will receive a proper funeral. We'll be working together to ensure that we prepare assistance, starting from ensuring that those who are affected get accommodation as we've started, ensure that they get clothes, they get uh, all things they need, although it will not be a comforting situation like one would have at home. But more than that, we'll then work with these communities to ensure that those who are affected, especially those who passed on, are given dignified uh, send-off. However, Umlazi father Mplangeni Sope says since his home was destroyed in a mudslide, he has received no assistance from government. Sope's two children have not been attending school since the beginning of the week because they lost all their belongings. Sope says they have been temporarily housed with the neighbors. Yes, brother, it's difficult to accept the situation because the kids need to go to school since they are still young. So now they are staying at home while other kids attend school. We are waiting for something and we don't know when it's going to come. They didn't come this side. They made us wait for the president to come to us. We kept being told that he is in his pingo and chat sweat. And we have had nothing from government at this point. In response, Zikalala says the floods and the catastrophic mudslides should not be seen as a fault of government, but rather an act of nature that has left a trail of destruction. We have instructed councillors to go there, visit the family and ensure that we provide necessary support. Of course, take a blame that we have not yet met them. Don't want us to see this is a fault of municipalities. A disaster is a disaster. It comes heavy and it comes unexpected. I don't want us to take this experience as if it points to a challenge in a particular sphere of government. But it brings also a lesson that we must continue improving the the methods, strategies to mitigate the effects of the disasters. Efforts to collect much-needed aid for displaced families are being coordinated around the country by organizations such as the Saivasatanda Sangam, the South African Jewish Board of Deputies, and the South African Hindu Mahasabha, who have joined hands and started an initiative called Flood Relief Collection. The gift of the givers has been providing humanitarian aid directly on the ground to communities and families who have suffered severe losses. Prabashni Mudli, SABC News, Durban. A disabled Syrian refugee who lives with cerebral palsy and uses a wheelchair has given an impassioned speech to the United Nations Security Council calling for the needs of people like her not to be ignored by global power brokers. 
In 2014, 20-year-old Nujin Mustafa fled from war-ravaged Aleppo with her family to Turkey, eventually ending up in Germany after an over 5,000-kilometer journey from her home. She told the Security Council that its job was to protect all civilians, including people with disabilities. Show and Bryce Peace reports. With 6 million people internally displaced and more than 5 million fleeing the country, Syria represents one of the largest man-made humanitarian disasters facing the world today, with a message delivered to Council that the humanitarian response to such conflicts often ignores the needs of the disabled. Listen to Nujin Mustafa. Independent organizations like Human Rights Watch have documented that people with disabilities cannot even access basic services such as sanitation, health care and education. Something I myself experienced when I fled. On my way to Germany, I didn't find many accessible bathrooms along the way and that's especially hard for a woman. There is very little data on how many people with disabilities live in Syria or have fled to neighboring countries and what our needs are. And without this data, uh, the programs and policies just don't meet our needs. We are invisible. After fleeing into southern Turkey, literally carried by her family, a 16-year-old Mustafa and her sister undertook a dangerous journey onto Germany while their parents remained behind. In total, a grueling 16-month trek by foot, bus, plane and boat, crossing the Mediterranean Sea to Greece, then northward onto Macedonia, Serbia, Hungary, until they eventually reached Germany, most of it in a steel wheelchair she received in Turkey. I had to roll on a very difficult terrain that was not at all suitable for a wheelchair. Um... I had to sleep in the wilderness with no blankets. I spent um, days like eating just Nutella and sugar, um, which doesn't, which is, which is not fun as it sounds. Um, and yeah, so and now I, I, I almost drowned in a dengue, but we survived. I brought the wheelchair with me, which was, which was the main point. Um, I'm happy, but at the end I was was just happy that I made it. Mustafa urged the council to involve people with disabilities in the planning of aid responses. This should not be just another meeting where we make grand statements and then move on to the next item on your agenda. You can and should do more to ensure that people with disabilities are included in all aspects of your work. We, We cannot wait any longer. People with disabilities often forgotten in times of peace, raising concerns about what they experience during times of war. This is not just my story. It's the experience of thousands of Syrians with disabilities who struggle to survive because of the limited services still functioning in the country. Lack of accessibility and the constant threat of violence, especially against women and girls. And if you got a disability as a result of the conflict, which, according to UNICEF, accounts for 1.5 million people still living in Syria, you now face stigma and exclusion within your community. 
Mustafa's story is chronicled in journalist Christina Lamb's book, The Girl from Aleppo, New Jeans Escape from War to Freedom. The young activist is also the 2019 recipient of the Alison Desforges Award from Human Rights Watch for Extraordinary Activism. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pees in New York. Lawmakers in the Democratic Republic of Congo have elected Jeanine Mabunda as head of the National Assembly. Mabunda was the only candidate fielded for the position after her main opponent, Henri Thomas Lokondo, was disqualified. The main opposition boycotted the process, citing political maneuvering. The new speaker belongs to the Common Forum for Congo, FCC coalition, which is led by former President Joseph Kabila. Januel Bamweze reports from Kinshasa. Most of the opposition members of parliament didn't cast their votes to elect the final committee members as they decided to boycott in order to express their anger. The National Assembly final committee is always made of seven members, but only six were elected on Wednesday due to this opposition boycott as only one position was given for opposition MPs. The opposition was demanding to be given two positions out of seven, but this wasn't accepted as six positions were given to the ruling coalition, which is made by President Felix Tshisekedi's coalition and former President Joseph Kabila's one. Opposition MPs then decided to appeal to justice, although the election went on, 383 MPs cast their votes and Janine Mabunda from Kabila's People's Party for Reconstruction and Democracy was elected a new speaker of the National Assembly. The lady is a former advisor to Joseph Kabila in charge of fight against the sexual violence. This is indeed the first time for the Democratic Republic of Congo's parliament to have a lady as the speaker. The election went very well and Janine Mabunda promised the the whole committee will work hard and do all the best to succeed. We promise to do all our best to achieve the heavy duties you've just assigned to us. For sure, we'll do all the possible to deserve your trust and remain close to you. We know it all. This election has taken place at an important time of our political history. Important time indeed, after the Democratic Republic of Congo has organized elections on its own and succeeded a peaceful power transfer from the ruling majority to the opposition. I then asked this youth leader from President Felix Tshisekedi's political party, the Union for Democracy and Social Progress, Pauline Mukunai, what does this mean for the country to have a lady as a National Assembly speaker for the very first time? I find it well. She has been elected. I think uh, this is a good strategy of uh, the new president. The new president came and said he's going to work with everyone because sometimes the guys are clever and they are right. They don't want something for stealing something like this. Even though the lady from Adonai FCC, people, there's no problem. She's going to work with the president of the country. That's why that Harry is very, very well. And I'm so happy to see a girl who is working now. With, we are sure. But says the president said, even though you came from PPRD, there is no problem. Come to work with me. But if you love so much dictator, you stealing, in that case, uh, will not get along well. FCC, they're going to work. There is no problem. But if you're going to steal something in Congo, in that case, let me tell you, they're going to put them off. The National Assembly is indeed the second position after the President of the Republic. Things are now moving smoothly more than three months after President Felix Tshisekedi came on power.
What people here in the Democratic Republic of Congo are now waiting for is Mr. President to appoint a prime minister and, of course, a new government for everything to go according to this country's constitution. Jean-Noël Bamweze for Channel Africa in Kinshasa. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. Rwanda's Supreme Court has upheld some provisions within the penal law on criminalizing adultery and defamation of the head of state, but the same court has maintained other articles that decriminalize defamation of other high-ranking government officials as well as heads of religious denominations in Rwanda. From Kigali, Silvanus Karamera reports. This follows a lawsuit filed by some lawyers last year contesting some articles within this law providing that the existence was contrary to the national constitution. The court maintained that insults or defamation against the president of the republic constitutes a crime given the high responsibility of the president and the respect that he deserves. The law has been battled by a group of lawyers in the Supreme Court sooner after it came into effect last year in August, attracted a lot of discussions in Rwanda, especially members of the media sector. Now, the Supreme Court, led by Chief Justice Professor Samuel Jeje, delivered a ruling. The four-judge bench, led by Chief Justice himself, ruled that the Articles 233 and 154 criminalizing humiliation of national leaders and persons in charge of public service and public defamation of religious rituals were against the freedom of expression and press freedom granted by the Constitution. He said that both the Constitution of the Republic of Rwanda and the international conventions to which Rwanda is signatory provided for freedom of expression and that freedom should be expressed in any way to reach the intended audience. One of the lawyers that filed a lawsuit challenging the existence of this law, Richard Mugisha, said this was the welcome move. This is a good decision because first of all, we as lawyers were able to express our views challenging some of the articles in this law. But more importantly, based on our battle, some articles have been scrapped off. Those which have remained unchanged means our colleagues provided perhaps the strong and convincing arguments that challenged us. But this is normal in a country which respects laws. Dr. Dennis Bichesha is a dean of school of law at the University of Rwanda. He provides an insight of how this law now comes to effect. So my comment is that uh, the, Supreme, the Supreme Court, first of all, has uh, clarified the matters that were lying between the penal code and the constitution of the Republic of Rwanda. This is a, 
a judgment of public interest litigation, which is in fact showing that the Supreme Court, uh, other than what the work that was done by, first of all, by the executive, because this, uh, these laws in Rwanda have to first be analyzed by cabinet ministers, and then they also go to the uh, parliament, uh, first as, as a bill, and then the parliament has to uh, enact them as laws. So this means that there is independence in our institutions, there is independence in our organs. Media practitioners have welcomed the decision by the Supreme Court to rule against some provisions in the penal law, which included those that criminalize humiliation of public authorities as well as reformation of religious rituals in the public. reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un has held talks with Russia's President Vladimir Putin in their first ever summit. They discussed the prospect of North Korea destroying its nuclear weapons and afterwards President Putin hinted at wanting a bigger role in negotiations between Chairman Kim and the U.S. leader Donald Trump. Lucy Taylor has more from Moscow. They're neighbors who had never met. But an afternoon of talking and then dining together seems to have marked the start of a new, closer relationship. The one-to-one talks between Vladimir Putin and Kim Jong-un lasted for twice the amount of time allocated in the schedule, suggesting the two men got on well. Afterwards, President Putin called Chairman Kim an interesting and informative speaker. The main issue on the agenda had been whether North Korea would ever give up its nuclear weapons in return for the lifting of international sanctions that are strangling North Korea's economy. Two months ago, a summit between Chairman Kim and the United States leader Donald Trump ended prematurely with no deal. Vladimir Putin said Kim Jong-un would need more guarantees of his security and sovereignty, not just from the US but from other countries in the region as well, and he seemed to offer himself as a mediator, saying that Chairman Kim had even asked him to speak directly to the United States. We didn't hear from Chairman Kim after the talks, but beforehand he said it was a great joy to be in Russia. He said that he was grateful for Russia's support at a time in history when, he said, all eyes are glued to the Korean Peninsula. Lucy Taylor, SABC News, in Moscow. The Chinese ambassador to Zimbabwe, Guo Shaochun, has a call for speedy economic reforms that would protect Chinese investments. The ambassador was speaking at his reception in the capital, Harare, after handing over his credentials to President Emerson Nagagwa. Our Harare-based correspondent, Simon Wichema, has more. The Chinese have announced their presence in Zimbabwe by calling on the speedy economic reforms that would allow smooth investments in the country. For years, the Chinese have been regarded the biggest trading partner for Zimbabwe, but very little can be attributed to the long-term relationship today. The relationship between China and Zimbabwe started way back during the War of Liberation, as several combatants were trained in China. Even after independence, Zimbabwe adopted the Look East policy, with China being the main target when USA and the EU imposed targeted sanctions on ZANU-PF individuals. In 2017, when President Emerson Nangagwa took office from the reins of Robert Mugabe, he announced Zimbabwe is open for business. 
This attracted more Chinese interest in Zimbabwe, but according to Chinese ambassador, punitive economic laws are restricting investment. Ambassador Guo Xiaochung made the remarks during his arrival reception held at the Chinese embassy in the capital. To this end, we will adhere to the problem-oriented approach, constantly improve our services while strengthening contacts with Chinese citizens, enterprises, institutions in Zimbabwe, and communication with the law enforcement authorities of Zimbabwean government. It is hoped that through our joint efforts, more favorable conditions will be created for Chinese citizens, enterprises, and institutions to help them better integrate into the local community and make a better contribution to the friendship and cooperation between our two countries. Chinese Deputy Ambassador Zhao Baogang explained what really is affecting the Chinese investors. So we wish that, for example, the Special Economic Zone Act and also the investment laws and also all the laws related to the investment because many laws were made in 1980s or even in 1970s. So those laws may not match the conditions. They cannot be fit to attract the investment now. So some of them have to be changed. Currently, Zimbabwe is ranked 155 up from 179 out of 190 world countries who have improved on the ease of doing business in the past three years. A lot of economic reforms need to be done to do away with strict laws that are restricting meaningful investment in Zimbabwe, Ambassador Guo said. Win-win outcome. Our trade and investment volume has expanded tremendously with Zimbabwe being among top African nations in receiving China's assistance and investment. The Victoria Falls Airport, the Mugabe International Airport, the Kariba South Hydropower Station, the Huangji Thermal Power Plant, and the new Parliament Building have and will become the new symbols of our friendship, bringing benefit to the development of Zimbabwe and the well-being of its people. Already, the Chinese have strengthened ties with Zimbabwe in the mining and energy sector, but they are now venturing into several other sectors to become the leading investors in Zimbabwe, Ambassador said. I will continue encouraging more Chinese investments into manufacturing, agricultural, mining and infrastructure sectors to help Zimbabwe tap into its huge potential and grow its economy. This year, Zimbabwe is faced with the huge task of rebuilding and reconstruction of the hard hit of Cyclone Ida. China has provided a series of support to help Zimbabwe to recover from the disaster. In Arare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa. Follow Channel Africa on these social media platforms on Facebook, Channel Africa One, on Twitter, at Channel Africa One, and YouTube on Channel Africa Radio. Our website, www.channelafrica.co.za. Channel Africa, from an African perspective. Abari, etise, mache, mingabo, baoni, kedu. Mbote, ndemne, bonsoir, 
Join me, Richard Mwamba, for a music show on Channel Africa called Africa in Song every Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. Africa in Song, Saturday and Sunday from 18 to 20 hours Central African time. It's 8.30 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Our headlines up next with Nosithle Zuma. Thank you, Lulu. Good morning. Cyclone Kenneth makes landfall in northern Mozambique with winds of 220 kilometers per hour and has already killed three people on the island nation of Comoros. The acting, the acting premier of South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province, Sihle Zigalala, says the provincial government will soon make an announcement regarding the funerals of the over 70 victims of the floods in the province. And the Somali government evacuates 50 people from Libya amid deteriorating security and escalating violence. And Musa will be back with your full bulletin at 9. Join world-renowned Harvard economist and corporate strategist Mark Kramer and other exciting speakers in Nairobi, Kenya at the Africa Shared Value Summit from 23 to 24 May 2019. Hear how business thought leaders and changemakers have transformed their organizations through profit with purpose. Book your ticket at africashadevaluesummit.com today. Channel Africa is a proud media partner of Africa Shared Value Summit and will be broadcasting live from the summit. Make sure you don't miss out on the broadcasts on the 23rd and the 24th of May 2019. Log on to www.channelafrica.co.za or Southern Africa DSTV 802 to listen. Channel Africa from an African perspective. 91% of malaria cases globally occur in Africa and beating the disease is a massive challenge. On Thursday, countries across the globe marked World Malaria Day under the theme Zero Malaria Death Starts With Me. The World Health Organization introduced the day in 2007 after growing concern that countries were failing to eliminate the illness. Zolega Kotashe reports. Fever, headache, vomiting, aches and pains, tiredness or fatigue. Health Department's Deputy Director General Jürgen Pele says despite the threats, our country has made progress in the fight against malaria. In South Africa, we have seen a 73% decrease in the number of malaria cases between 2000 and 2018. So in the year 2000, we had about 64,000 cases of malaria in South Africa that were diagnosed. And if you fast forward to 2018, that number decreased to just over 17,000. And the same with malaria deaths, it decreased deaths by 74%. 
While the National Institute for Communicable Diseases agrees with the department, it also says reaching South Africa's objective of eliminating malaria by 2023, which is only four years away, may be challenging. The organization says this is due to the complexity of the transmission of the disease and the changing nature of mosquitoes. However, senior scientist at the NICD, Dr. Jashri Rahman, says the country has ways of decreasing the rate of transmission. Over 100 years of malaria interventions in South Africa, ending up with vector control using insecticide-based indoor residual spraying, known as IRS, and effective treatment and proper surveillance has gotten South Africa to the stage where it's attempting to eliminate malaria. IRS is very effective in dealing with mosquitoes that feed indoor, and it needs to be maintained in South Africa if we want to achieve malaria elimination. UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador for Malaria, Yvonne Chagachaga, says more work needs to be done in the fight against the illness. Malaria is a disease which is curable and preventable, yet so many people kept on dying from this. Pregnant women and children under five become so vulnerable to malaria, but we've seen so much work that has been done, and we need to not stop now. We need to still educate our people, conscientize them. There's still so much work that needs to be done. Pele has urged those who have malaria symptoms to seek medical attention. South Africa is committed to eliminating malaria. We have medication and it's free in all our public clinics and hospitals. So I will encourage people with symptoms, especially in the summer, because that's when we get an increase in the number of people with malaria, to go and get treated. Earlier this week, the World Health Organization announced that 360,000 children a year in three African countries will receive the world's first malaria vaccine as part of a large-scale pilot project. Malawi has started vaccinating children under two years old, while Kenya and Ghana will begin using the vaccine in the coming weeks. Zolega Kotashe in Johannesburg. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. A street musician in Malawi is hoping to bring the plight of albinism to international attention. People born with the condition in Malawi, Mozambique and Tanzania have been killed due to the false belief that rituals involving parts of their bodies can bring good luck and wealth. But Lazarus Chigwandali is challenging those beliefs in his music. The BBC's music reporter Mark Savage has been speaking to him. In his house in Nankumba village, 50 miles south of Malawi's capital, Lazarus Chigwandali is recording his debut album. The album is called Stomp on the Devil, and it's a story of survival against the odds, because Lazarus was born with albinism, a condition that can spell a death sentence in Malawi, as he explained through an interpreter. People here in Malawi believe that a person with albinism is not like a normal human being. Some people believe that if they have sex or sleep with a person with albinism, they get cured of HIV. Some people believe that if they take bones of people with albinism and if they sell it, they're going to be rich. Growing up, Lazarus was shunned by his village and lived in constant fear of kidnap and mutilation. But he found solace in the music he made with his younger brother on a homemade guitar. 
He composed this song with his brother uh, entitled uh, Makolo Mukulekelelana. It's like uh, it's bad parents, you're not looking after your kids well. Like in this village, there used to be parents who just like let their kids do whatever they want, like steal, gamble. And so Lazarus and his young brother like try to teach the parents that this is the wrong way. The brothers' songs became a sensation in the village. Peter and Lazarus were invited to play at weddings and christenings. But when Peter died of skin cancer, Lazarus fled the village and began to busk in the city. It was there that a tourist filmed him playing an early version of Stomp on the Devil. The video eventually found its way to Johann Hugo of the European African Dance Act, the very best. I really, really liked the music. The, he was playing this kind of punk rocky traditional music almost on his homemade banjo. There is a real pop sensibility. At the same time, it's so traditional and raw and energetic. Johan decided to track Lazarus down in Malawi, and there he convinced him to record an album. <laughs> The first single, We Are Strangers, came out earlier this year. Its message, that people with albinism are no different to anyone else. To Lazarus's surprise, the song has been played extensively, not just in Malawi, but on radio stations in the UK and Europe. All the attention has changed his life. He's saying that uh, before then he even wanted like, to just jump into the highway and, and have a car like smash him and kill him. That's the feeling he had before, but now... He's happy now that the whole world, and Malawi especially, are listening to what he's saying in his music, like telling people that what they are doing to people with albinism is wrong. And the message will spread even further when a documentary about Lazarus premieres at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York this weekend. It's been produced by the US pop star Madonna, who's given the musician a new outlook on the possibilities of music. He says that if his music is going to be like popular like Madonna's, he's going to spend the whole day in his house just dancing. That report by the BBC's Mark Savage. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The Arctic is warming at a much faster rate than the rest of the planet. A report from the Norwegian government earlier this year warned that the archipelago of Svalbard halfway between continental Norway and the North Pole, could warm by 10 degrees Celsius by the end of the century. The BBC's Keith Adams reports from Svalbard. In a disused coal mine deep in the Arctic tundra, an art installation. Machinery lit by coloured lights, sound recordings of wind and industrial noises and the smell of roses. It's a response to this stark environment and the effects of climate change. The Colombian artist Oswaldo Masia called the piece a gift to Svalbard. Remember, they had 300 years people came here just for whaling. They came here just for coal. 
still people commit just taking and taking and taking. A gift can be a revolutionary act. Yeah, exactly. We need to do radical things. I've come to the edge of Long Yerbian, the northernmost town in the world. I'm looking up at a snowy mountainside. It's the source of two avalanches which crashed into this part of the town in 2015 and 2017. It's feared that the accelerated warming here in the Arctic makes avalanches more likely. Tron Alva lives in the building behind me. Started working at 7 o'clock on the morning and the avalanche come about 10.15, I think. So my wife going to work 10 minutes before 10. So both of us was lucky. Uh, only the dog was home. So the dog was uh, have been in the avalanche two times. Rocky. Yeah, yeah. So he's, a, he's a bulldog, yeah? Yeah, he's a bulldog. We see that on the evening. He is scared, so he knows that something's going on. You think that Rocky now knows yeah. when there's going to be an avalanche? Yeah, yeah. You lived in two houses yeah. that were hit by avalanches, yeah. Yeah. and you're still here on the mountain? I'm still here. Tron, you're smiling. Yeah, I'm smiling. It's a very good life to be up here. Very good life. Students here on Svalbard taking part in the Friday climate protests, which have been seen in many countries. That's Alden Salter speaking to the BBC's Keith Adams on the Arctic archipelago of Svalbard. Our economics update up next with Tavi Solohoku. Good morning. Chinese President Xi Jinping has opened a meeting of more than 30 world leaders in Beijing for a second summit to discuss China's ambitious global investment and infrastructure program known as the Belt and Road Initiative. Xi's project is a reboot of the ancient Silk Road to connect Asia to Europe and Africa through investments in maritime road and rail projects. Speaking through an interpreter, Xi Jinping explained the initiatives, or rather, Simon Muchemwa reports. Dear colleagues and friends, the joint pursuit of the Belt and Road Initiative aims to enhance connectivity and practical cooperation. It's about jointly meeting the various challenges and risks confronting mankind and delivering win-win outcomes and common development. And that was uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping speaking there through an interpreter. South Africa's Association of Mine Workers and Construction Union will hold a media briefing this morning to respond to the Labour Department's registrar, Lechon Olomolefe's announcement that it intends to deregister the union 
The Labour Department says AMCU is not operating according to its own constitution. This stems from the union's failure to hold a national congress last year. AMCU's constitution stipulates that it will hold an elective conference once every five years. Molefe has now given AMCU 60 days to provide him with a written submission on why it should not be deregistered. What we are expecting from them once they are making those representations is to come with substantive detailed programs to say this is what we have done already and this is what we are going to do within a specific time frame. This is what we are going to be monitoring so that we ensure that the National Congress that is supposed to take place will take place. Botswana's Okavango Diamond Company is undecided on which model to use to sell the multi-million US dollar polished diamond named the Okavango Blue, discovered at the Debsona Diamond Company Orapa Mine last year. Available options are world tour, with the potential to culminate in an auction sale live for the market's highest bidder, or private sales. The overall shaped blue diamond weighing over 20 carats is the biggest blue diamond discovery ever made in Botswana. Uganda is set to export medical marijuana products to Canada and Germany. It has also emerged that Uganda exported unrefined cannabis buds or flowers to South Africa's National Analytical Forensic Services in Pretoria. The order to a private company, Industrial Hemp, is valued at 100 US dollars. The marijuana exports from a farm in Kasese district include the cannabidiol and a tetrahydrocannabinol with mixture of 2.7 milligrams tetrahydrocannabinol and the 2.5 milligrams cannabidiol for Servitex drugs approved in the USA, Europe and Canada. Oil resin contains adronabinol for making marinol and syndrose capsules and CBD-enriched creams for various skin disorders. The Southern Times, a partnership between the Zimbabwean and Namibian resource governments, will be closing down next week after 15 years of dwindling financial resources. Moses Magaza, who is the paper's founding editor, also confirmed that he has been asked to write a valedictory message. Former editors have been asked to write valedictory messages for the last edition to be published this morning. Namibia's information ministry says the newspaper is not shutting down, but is merely being turned into a static news bureau funded by the Namibian government. The U.S. dollar is trading at 359.88 Nigerian Nara, 10.55 Botswana Pula, 100 Kenyan shilling 72 cents, and 12.50 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, one U.S. dollar will cost you 397 Brazilian roll, 64.59 Russian ruble, 70.20 Indian rupee, 6.74 Chinese yuan, and 14.44 to the South African rand. It's also trading at 77 pence to the British pound and at 89 cents to the euro. At commodities markets now, gold $1,280, platinum $889. Dollars pounds. The price of Brent crude oil is at seventy-four dollars twelve cents a barrel. From an African perspective,
Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update, we begin with football news. South African Premiership side Mamelodi Sundowns will be looking to score their first goal away from home against Widad Casablanca in the first leg match of the KF Champions League semi-final in Casablanca this evening. Sundowns have played against Widad three times in Morocco in recent times but lost all three matches 1-0. Coach Peter Musimane says they need to score a crucial away goal tonight. What's important is to try and score. We haven't broken that ice. We haven't scored in Widad, yeah? It's either we get a draw or we lose 1-0. Uh, so we need to, to try and score, try and win. And even if you don't win, 1-1 one, one would be nice. You know, try and score away. So I, I don't know what's, what's the coach's game plan when we have to start there. I know what is my plan when we're always here. You know, so I, I think I'll, I'll pass it on him now. It's, it's his chance to, 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 to react. And after all the boys, it's been too long, guys. We have to score and we that. We have to change the fortunes, you know, so hopefully we score. Sundowns have also played three times against Widad at home, winning two times and drawing the other match. They won 1-0 and 2-1 and drew the other match one all. Musimane says they have always done well against North African teams at home. It's okay, I'm going there, you know the story. Let's be honest, I, I think Sundowns has got a, 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 a game at home for the North Africans. They don't deal with it well. You've seen it so many times. So that's what we know and that's what they know. Okay? In athletics, the first day of Athletics South Africa Senior Championships was disrupted by heavy rains and lightning in Jamestown Stadium yesterday. The Senior Championships that were scheduled to start at 9am were delayed by two hours. As if this was not enough, then load shedding added to their frustrations in the evening, forcing the event to be cut even shorter. World champion Casta Semenya was one of those who performed, winning the 5,000 meter in 16 uh, minutes, 0.05 seconds, with Tebu Homama to clinching the 100 meter women's final in 11 seconds, 0.45 seconds. Mama too has more. It was really nice. I really enjoyed it. Um, from the get go, I was like, focus, come out of the blocks, mm. pick your head up, and just go. So, for me, it was amazing. It was a great day. I wanted to go a bit faster, but like I said, sometimes this athlete, it's so hard when you put so much uh, emphasis on time. And it always just never happens. So I think for me, for now, I'm happy with the time, but yeah, we can only, you can only get better. This is like my third race or competition, so it's not bad. Something felt better, yeah, in terms of execution and everything. Loom definitely was the worst for me, <laughs> and the AGNs was actually good as well. Like, yeah, the execution there was great. So yeah, this was great. The race today. Taking gold medal in the men's 100 meter final was the sprinter Simon Mahakwe, who crossed the finish line in 10 seconds, followed by Tandolwenko Silhoto right on his heels. With a long athletic season ahead, Mahakwe says that there are even bigger competition lined up for him. No, I haven't done too much speed. You know, this is my second was doing speed. So I'm thinking about natural speed. When I talk about natural speed, I'm thinking about the speed that you have naturally without doing too much speed. Yeah, so I think that's is happening now. So we're gonna because you know the season is long, so you can't just push, 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 push. 
Karatika. I mean, um, I think I'm going to start racing in June in Europe uh, because we have a world relays in Japan now. So, um, usually my coach, what he said is that uh, for now, let's just take it easy and then from maybe May, then we push hard to Europe. And then, you know, it's a long season. So, I think my peak will start hopefully by end of July. That's your sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa. Democratic Republic of Congo's parliament elects first female speaker. Rwanda Supreme Court repeals law banning satirical cartoons. And South Africa steps up relief efforts in areas devastated by floods. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumutsura Magadza and Komutsumo Pulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at infochannelafrica.org, WhatsApp on 277-6300327 or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. And taking us to the top of the hour for the news on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za is Oliver Mduguzi with a song titled Ghetto Boy.